The following is a message from Reverend Ken Belden of Wellsprings Congregation. So there I was on my day off this past week. My drive had gone about 180 yards playing golf. And I'm not very good, but I'm getting better. And I was facing up, and I thought, I'm good enough to try this. Because even though I'd hit my drive almost as straight and in the fairway as I wanted, what was I facing in front of me? A little miniature Christmas tree. (laughs) I thought, I can lift it up and over this. So I lined up my five iron, breathe deeply, backswing, weight shift, remembering my lessons, forward, keep the shoulder in and down, and through. And that great sound and feeling when you know you've hit a shot well, if you're a golfer, whoosh, and it's like a knife right through warm butter. It goes right through. You can tell you've touched something, but there's no resistance. And it felt so good for about half a second, because then I heard the sound that no golfer wants to hear. The crack, the large crack of ball well struck hitting wood of tree branch. (laughs) And then the inevitable trickle of the ball five feet beyond the tree. I'd hit the ball about as good, about as well as I could have, but it still didn't do what I wanted it to do. I'm not that good yet that I can actually curve things around a tree. Now, my temptation, even before I hit the shot, was to move it. My scores aren't that great anyway. Who would have known if I just would have moved it, you know, three yards to my left and given me a clear, clear line of sight right to the pin? But the trick in golf, if you want to get better, as the trick in life is, if you want to develop and we want to develop, is to play it where it lays. Play the ball where it is live our lives as they are, change from this place, hit the shot that we're given, face what is, not wonder and worry about what if. Groundhog Day, the movie, is finally and fundamentally about someone, and it takes him a long, long time, about someone who finally and fundamentally learns to play it where it lays play his life where it is. Now, how many of you have seen Groundhog Day? All right, I think this will probably be the greatest saturation in terms of the people who've seen any of the movies we're preaching on this summer, so I'm not going to give you too much about it. You know it's the story of Phil Connors, who's a weatherman. It's really the story of one other and almost, well, two almost, almost other people. Rita, his producer, and she's played by Andy McDowell, and Larry, the cameraman, played by the doofus-like, wonderfully doofus-like Chris Elliott. Phil, at the beginning of the movie, is as arrogant and conceited and self-absorbed and impatient as a person can be. In some ways, this is sort of like the story that we did a few weeks back. We did Evan Almighty, except Groundhog Day, I think, is a much better movie. And Phil is an even bigger jerk than Evan was at the start of that movie. And he is sent for the fourth year in a row to Punxsutawney from Pittsburgh, Punxsutawney, Pennsylvania, where we all know the little groundhog Phil sticks his little snout out 
every February 2nd, and if he sees a shadow, well, then we say, if he sees a shadow six more weeks, I never got this part correct. Sees a shadow six more weeks, doesn't see it, not six more weeks of winter. Whatever the case is, he is sent to cover us this non-story, and he fully believes it is a non-story every single year. Now, Phil Connors is a professional forecaster. He is a predictor of what will happen. And his life is completely focused on the future. When he is questioned back in the studio in the first scene by one of the anchors, he says, well, I'm not going to be around here that much longer. One of the major networks is talking to me. I'm going to be out of here. I'm not going to be here that much longer. But it's poetic justice in this movie. Poetic, metaphysical, comedy justice. Because he is trapped in Punxsutawney by a blizzard that he incorrectly predicts will not be anywhere near the center of the state of Pennsylvania. What he never thought would occur does occur. And in an amazing takeoff, the guy who originally wrote the script for this, Danny Rubin, is a Buddhist practitioner. And what he is talking about is what's called in Eastern tradition samsara. It is the recycle of life, death, rebirth throughout and throughout and throughout, and especially in Buddhism, the aim, the goal of existence is to realize nirvana, the exit from samsara, the very thing that Phil Connors is trapped in. And so he awakes every day, and it's a wonderful joke. To which song? I got you, babe. It's not a love song here, it is a sentence. I got you, babe. It's almost as if that radio is channeling the joking voice of God saying, I got you, under my thumb you are here. And to extend a lot of the religious symbolism of this movie, because there's a great deal, what we end up seeing are actually three days. I think the makers of the movie knew that there's some Christian symbolism in this. Good Friday, a really, really long Holy Saturday, and yes, at the end, Easter. Three days we see. We see February 1st, we see huge February 2nd, and at the end we see February 3rd. Every day, each and every day, Phil Connors wakes up in Punxsutawney on Groundhog Day. Do you know that the original script, I did a lot of research on this movie, the original script called for him to be stuck in Punxsutawney for over a thousand years. Over a thousand years of the same day. Over and over and over. Now, that version didn't get made. And it's estimated by Harold Ramis, the guy who did end up co-writing it with Danny Rubin and the director of the movie, is that Phil spends at least a minimum of 10 years living the same day. 10 times 365, 3,654 days at a minimum of the same day over and over and over again. And so the question is, especially the spiritual question is, is he in jail? Is he in the twilight zone? Is he in hell? Is he in heaven? I heard... You ever watch Entourage? Dennis Hopper was on as Dennis Hopper the other day, and he said, God is the greatest interior decorator there is, and also the great sound effects artist, I suppose, as well, too. To those questions answered, hell, heaven, twilight zone... Yes, 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 and yes. It is all of those things for Phil Connors. If you've seen the movie, and many of you have, you know at first it's befuddlement. At first, absolute befuddlement. He cannot believe, as any of us would, 
what the blank is happening to me? What is happening to me? And he seeks an explanation, and then he seeks a medical explanation, and then he seeks a psychological explanation, and none of them, none of them give him the answer that he wants. And then, after the panic and the befuddlement, what happens? He starts to try and transcend his experience, but in the most immature ways. He says, I'm not going to play by their rules anymore, as he's driving down the train tracks, facing an oncoming train with the two town drunks, with the cops in back of them. I'm not going to play by their rules anymore. Immature, adolescent rebellion. Food, as much of it as he wants. Sex. He becomes a master of learning the stories of the women in the town for the purpose of seduction. Burglary? He recognizes that there are two not-quite-bright guys who drive the armored truck. And so he knows exactly when one of them is going to drop the roll of quarters, and he can walk up and, without being noticed, grab one of those money bags and make it his own. He indulges every single whim that you can because there are no consequences. He thinks if there are no consequences, then I'm not going to get caught. And even if I do, as he does at times, ends up in jail, the next day, bang, I got you, babe, six o'clock in the morning, the alarm going off. Really, what he's talking about, and it's going to sound odd that I'm quoting these guys, but he's talking about one of the great philosophical lines ever uttered. It was by the Sex Pistols, that great punk band. In their song, God Save the Queen, They sing, when there's no future, there cannot be sin. That's exactly what he's living right now. Yes, rock. Thank you, Michael. Great song. When there's no future, there cannot be sin. From a somewhat different perspective, but making the same point, he is living what the philosopher Soren Kierkegaard called the purely aesthetic level of existence. All that matters in this is the experience of experience, as much of it, as much of it as he would want. And this is where the very important figure of Rita enters the story, most meaningfully and most powerfully. Without Rita, Phil would not be redeemed. Because you know what? She is the teacher in this movie. She holds up the picture of reality that Phil needs to see. See, because eventually he comes back around to his producer and he's thinking, okay, maybe I can woo her as well too. And day after day after day passes and he's trying to pick up the information on her, but she knows. She sniffs it out that he is not at all genuine. She sniffs out his inauthenticity. And one of those great movie sequence scenes, you know, the woman slapping the man's face, it's six or seven or eight days all end with Phil getting his face slapped by Rita. And he becomes increasingly desperate. Increasingly desperate because his desire is frustrated. These things, the food, the sex, the money, having as much of them except for love, except for love, these things do not satisfy his desire. It is one of the central teachings, one of the four noble truths, of Buddhism, that our desire leads to attachment and our attachment leads to suffering. These things don't satisfy him. The path of his excess does not lead to the palace of wisdom. And so his desperation of his unmet despair, of his uncompletely unsatiated desires, they lead him to trying to extinguish all of his desires, but not through work and not through practice 
Because the next thing that Phil Connors does is he falls into despair. If you see the movie, he lists all the ways that he tries to kill himself and actually does kill himself on February 2nd. Shot, jumped off of a building, stabbed, hung. We see one where he takes the toaster out of the boarding house where he's staying and he comes and he drops it with toast still in right into the tub and shorts out the entire boarding house. But nothing will gain him release. Nothing will gain him release. He cannot extinguish his life. And so after he exhausts himself in pleasure and after he exhausts himself in pain, Phil then fitfully, fitfully begins to start his personal growth. Starts to experience this eternity of the present as a blessing, as something he might know as giving him fullness of life. And in this, Phil and Rita's teaching is instructive for us. Because the first great lesson of Groundhog Day and Phil's coming to awakening is this. It's something we talk all the time about here at Welsings. And it's something we encourage in all of your lives. And many of you do meditate. Many of you do pray and do have a spiritual practice. The power of practice, daily practice in life, is irreplaceable if we want to grow spiritually and into a full awakening of our potential as human beings. Thich Nhat Hanh, the great Buddhist teacher, in his wonderful little book, The Miracle of Mindfulness, that some of you I know are familiar with, talks about a scene in which he is meeting with another peace activist friend of his, and they are planning how they will, this is during the Vietnam War, how they will protest that war. And he's saying one of his friends is eating an orange. And he's eating the orange and eating the orange and eating the orange. And he almost does not stop with one slice in his mouth to peel off another slice and just sort of cram one another slice in and cram another slice in and cram another slice in. And what he points out to his friend is, you are eating your future plans. You are not here now in the time that we are sharing. He said if we can eat an orange fully, slowly, slice by slice, then we can live our lives. If we can eat fully, think of it, when you're rushed, when you're on the go, you got that first bite in your mouth. I did this just the other day with a fast food drive through burger. I, years ago, I saw a supersize me. I said, I'm not going to go to McDonald's anymore, and I broke my own, my own code for myself. But I was in a rush, and it was barely in my mouth, and the second bite was coming up, and then the third bite. The tangerine slice, the orange slice, one after another, after another. This is what Phil Connors does in that scene in which he's talking about how he's got complete control, complete knowledge. If you remember, he takes a big pastry about the size of, you know, two or three sizes of his mouth. And I think it's almost homage to his dead friend Jim Belusi from that Animal House scene where he puts the thing in and he goes... He takes that whole pastry and he shoves the whole thing in his mouth so he's got all this, all this icing smeared all over himself. He is eating, at that point, his future plans. But where his growth really starts is in the good that he learns from practice. Fast-forwarding to the end of the movie, as many of you know, what has Phil learned? How to play the piano? How to be an ice sculptor? How to learn who is imperiled and who he can save during that February 2nd Groundhog Day in Punxsutawney? And he shows up for each of those things as someone who saves other people by getting his time right and as by someone who has become a devotee by practicing and we see that in his first piano lesson he doesn't know what he's doing 
And we see, and this is where Harold Ramis said, it takes at least 10 years from to learn all those things, so that's why I estimate he was there for 10 years, to become a pianist of that quality. He learns in all of these things, in practice, what is true for all of us here today, that anything begun fully and heartfully and mindfully and with our true intention, that anything begun fully is never begun too late. That's what practice teaches us, day in and day out. He, after he frustrates himself with his desire and frustrates himself with his desire to snuff that desire out, he learns what it is to have a beginner's mind, to practice one thing each and every day, and through time to make his eternity a blessing. He changes as he commits himself to practice, commits himself to change. And this takes us to Groundhog Day's second great lesson for us. Do you know that nothing, nothing at all in Groundhog Day changes? Nothing changes. It's the same day over and over again. What changes? The one thing. Phil's attitude. Phil's attitude is the only thing that really changes in the movie. It is so instructive to all of us who struggle with wondering how will life be? What's going to happen? What's going to happen to make me happy? What's going to happen to make us happy? But the first thing that needs to change for any of us is internal. That attitude that must change if we are going to change. George Clinton of Parliament Funkadelic put it this way, and I'll clean it up just a little bit for the kids in the house. But he says, free, free your mind and your rear end will follow. Free your mind and the rest of you will follow. Phil frees his mind. He changes his attitude. And it starts slowly. There's a great scene in which he is sitting in the coffee shop and he's begun to read poetry. And while the rest of the people are cleaning up, cleaning up in the coffee shop, he hears coming out of the boombox this beautiful music. And you can see the look on his face. It's that great look of appreciation. Maybe you've had it in your life when it's, aha, I could try that. When that look of appreciation starts to change him and he follows that appreciation into a life of practice. It's a realization followed by one small change, followed by another realization, followed by another small change, and he becomes a different character. It starts, it starts with him changing his mind. And this is also where Rita is his great teacher and is a blessing to him. And if there is an angel in the movie, it is her. Again, she sniffs out his agenda. She disbelieves him early on when he is completely inauthentic. But as he changes, as practice and his attitude change his life, she stops disregarding him. She believes him. She does not deny him any longer. And in the end, even though all they share is just together, a series of this one day, his authenticity has them fall in love. She is the film's great teacher. Thank you, Rita. <laughs> the one who really does accurately reflect back the state of reality to fill. This is one of the ancient meanings of redemption. It's one of the prophetic materials. God says, I will buy you back to the Israelites who are in exile. And that's literally, and I don't think the symbolism of this was inadvertent, that's literally what Rita does with Phil. If you remember the end of the movie, there's the auction. She buys him back and she says, I own you now. Your life's not your own. This is a redemption story. 
This is a redemption story. And remember that I think the best meaning of redemption is to find ourselves in the same situation as we once were in life and to be able to recognize those circumstances for what they were, but to be able to change in the day. That the circumstances are the same, but we, knowing ourselves differently through time, are able to make different decisions. That is the deeper meaning of redemption. The same day, even if you think so many of your days are the same, what's the difference? There's nothing new under the sun. The same day does not have to be a curse, because your mind, your heart, your hands, your practice can change. But only if we can appreciate the time that we already possess. Emerson, who was great with the jokes and with the witticisms, said, what would, use, would the use of immortality be to a person who cannot use a half-hour well? What good would eternity be to someone who says, eh, I need to kill the time? His great then Thoreau said, you cannot kill time without simultaneously injuring eternity. Eternity, too much time, will feel like too much time, so much time, if we can't fill the small time that is here and now. And this brings us to another great lesson. To learn to live with what we have and who we are and what we cannot know. To play our lives, as I said before, whether in the golf course and especially in a whole of our lives. This is another of Groundhog Day's great wisdom. I've never given such a dramatic sermon. <laughs> we have a video clip. And we are having some problems with the sound. But you will get the meaning of the clip, I think. Even if we don't hear the sound, I'll try to narrate a little bit. Go ahead, John. Chapter 23. There we go. Okay, this is, as many of you know, an old man who Phil, at first, wouldn't give any money to, did the fake thing, oh, I don't have any cash, and then after a while started to give him some money. And the scene before this, actually, we're going to see this in just a second, Phil is starting at this point to live somewhat ethically, concerned for other people, and he sees that the old man is sick and ill, and what the nurse is telling him now is that the old man has just died. And what Phil is going to ask is, can I see his chart? Who is he? He can't die today. Not today. Not today. And he goes back and he gets the information about who the old man is. And he confronts, although we don't see his body, the old man and the fact that he is dead. And so what he does is he treats the old man as well as he can on what he hopes is not his last day. He takes him, this man is clearly homeless, he's clearly poor, he takes him and buys him as much food as he can to try and fill him up, try and be attentive to his needs. And here, as is inevitable, the old man dies once again. And it's really a beautiful scene in many ways because what we will see in a second is the, line, the final last breaths. As the Hebrews call it, the spirit 
the Ruah. You see it there trailing off? And it ends. It ends. Phil, no matter how hard he tries, cannot save, cannot keep this old man from dying. And his breath goes out, and he looks up. Now, in this scene, which really starts the final day of the movie, Phil is quoting Chekhov. <laughs> he has become literate. He has become the man around whom all the other people, even all the other newscasters, are there and following because he has become so wise and has become so poetic in his understanding of what Groundhog Day is. He does his job so fully. And at the end, they all applaud him. And he sees Rita, and he sees Larry, and Larry says, You touch me, man. <laughs> and Rita, who again, remember, doesn't remember all those other days before that when Phil used to be a jerk, is incredibly impressed with this new Phil. And she says, Can I buy you a cup of coffee? And he says, Well, I got something to do first. And it'll be after this next scene that we'll cut it out. But I'll see you in a bit, he says. Where are you going? How can you have errands to run? He's a little bit late. <laughs> Very dramatic with the... <laughs> Thanks, John. He says, you never thank me any day. You never thank me, you brat. These scenes are a direct allusion and actually a direct culling of the Buddha's story of his awakening. As many of you know his story, he is a rich young prince in India of the historical Buddha. And his father tries to shield him from all sickness, all death, all dis-ease. He lives a life of absolute indulgence of every whim. And he is out one day traveling in his royal carriage and he happens to spy outside the window of that carriage an old man stooped and bent over. And he has never seen such a thing. All the realities of life have been hidden from him. And he gets out of the carriage and says, What are you? You can't possibly exist. And the old man says, in effect, This is the way of all life. This is the way of all life. We are all mortal. If we're lucky, we get to grow old. But all of us are destined to grow old. And very much like with Phil, this is where the awakening begins. Our mortality we cannot change, but we can awaken to what our mortality can teach us. And in this as well, Phil learns also the moment of the Buddha's awakening. It is told that he is meditating under the bow tree and he achieves enlightenment. And you see those pictures of the Buddha with that, not goofy, not even all that full smile, but contented smile. And the people who've been following the great teacher ask him, what has changed? What has changed? Are you a god? No. Are you a diva? Not like Lindsay Lohan, diva. But are you a diva, a great teacher? No. Are you a man of magic? No. Well, then what are you? Many of you know the answer. I am awake. I am awake is the Buddha's answer. And this is an answer to what Phil says earlier in the film to Rita. I'm a god. I can't die. 
I may not be the God, but I'm a God. In that scene where he realizes that he cannot adjust a person whose time it is and whose time has come, he realizes the wisdom of another tradition. God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. He knows the difference between who he was. He knew everything about everyone in that town of Punxsutawney. He could list off all their biography. He could list off all their secrets. He knew what was going to happen. He had a volume of knowledge. But here, he starts to gain wisdom. And these are two fundamentally different ways of living the religious life. And I got a great example of this yesterday. I was really blessed and honored to be at this community gathering. We were able to share the story of Wellsprings with people and let them know about spiritual cinema and just let folks know. I probably gave about 75, 100 of those little spiritual cinema cards. And one of the people who approached me was a member of a different church. And what she really wanted to know is, Jesus Christ, your personal Lord and Savior. And is Jesus Christ considered the personal Lord and Savior of your church? And I went through a few different explanations of how Jesus is viewed. And my own personal favorite is Emerson's, that Jesus realized so wonderfully his God-given fullness of life and loved in that way those who he knew and taught the nature of that love. <laughs> that was not enough. So Jesus Christ isn't your personal Lord and Savior, both of these two ladies said. And I said, no, he's not. And we started to talk a little bit about it, and well, I said, finally, I suppose we will just agree to disagree. They're not going to be coming to Wellsprings. <laughs> and her parting shot was, well, when the rapture comes, you will see. Do you know what the rapture is, the teaching of the rapture? It's a small, tiny little line in Scripture that most traditional Christians concerned about the veracity of Scripture they consider it to be completely overread and taken out of context. But when the rapture comes, we'll all learn the truth. There's not much conversation you can have with a person after that because there's no way to prove that article fallible. It's in the future. It's based upon a set of assumptions and a knowledge that I don't have and I don't think they have. But probably if I thought about it a little bit more, I should have said, well, you know what, we'll all be proven wrong, I guess, when the 12th Imam shows up, <laughs> which is the apocalyptic form of Islam. Or I should have said, I guess we'll all be proven wrong when the real Messiah comes out of the Jewish people. There's no way to falsify that argument. There's no way to prove it or disprove it. And unfortunately, that is one of the methods of being religious in our society, and unfortunately the dominant method. My knowledge trumps your knowledge. My God is bigger than your God. In the end times, in the Big Bang at the end of history, whoop! Sheep over there, the blessed over here. Oh, excuse me, the sheep over there, the goats over there, the blessed over here, the damned over there. That is finally, for me, and I would venture to say for us, just not a productive way to lead a spiritual life. Just not a productive way to base our religious belonging on how much we absolutely know so that we can say with confidence to another person, well, at the end of time, I'll be absolutely right. And what I actually believe is that the love from which we come will finally gather us home. That's as much as I can say about it, as much as I know about it, as much as I would hope to believe about it. But it's not much of an answer to someone who says, when the rapture comes, those knuckles are going to get wrapped big time. 
Phil transcends his earlier attitude and he moves from one way of religious being, which is based upon control and knowledge, to a different way, which is based upon wisdom and service. And here it's not something that Phil says, but it is how the movie begins and ends that we have a clue to where all this stuff comes from. If you're remembering the opening credits and you remember the closing credits, you know where they appear? In the sky. A beautiful blue sky day with a few clouds floating by. And the same thing at the end, too. It is the mystery. Finally, Phil accepts that it just happens. He is just somehow miraculously, mysteriously, and finally wonderfully stuck on Groundhog Day, day after day after day, and he doesn't need to know the reason why. That is part of a healthy spiritual attitude. Life is a gift, not a given. And the spiritual response is to say, what will we make of this gift? What will our response be to that transcending source of wonder and mystery and love in all of our lives? And even Christianity says it this way as well, too. It talks about the second form of spirituality being more important. It's in that 1 Corinthians 13, the love poem that really wasn't written for people when they were getting married, but it's read all the time when they are. And Paul talks about, if I know all mysteries and have the gift of prophecy, and the key line, and have not love, I am nothing. He's saying even from a tradition that puts a large premium on knowing God's mind, still, if we have not love, we are nothing. And that's the final theme of Groundhog's Day. Phil is saved by getting a servant's heart. Not servants in the sense of getting paid to make another person's bed, although there's nothing wrong, clearly, with that work. It is a servant's heart in that he asks himself, what use are my gifts for the betterment of this community and all the people around me? On that final day, on that final day that begins where he saves that child and quotes Chekhov, we see him playing piano for a group that is reveling in his gifts. We see him ice sculpting with a chainsaw and the people who knew him before saying, I don't know he could do this. We see him saving the mayor of the town with the Heimlich maneuver who's choking during the celebratory dinner. We see him orchestrating his life so that what he has to give fills him up and fills other people's up as well. He gains a servant's heart. And he says to Rita on that final day, no matter what happens tomorrow or for the rest of my life, I am happy now because I love you. We are about to move to February 3rd. And on the morning he awakens, he hears once again, I got you, babe. But he doesn't wake up with anger. He says, okay, maybe it's just another day. Then he realizes the broadcasters are talking to each other. Why do you keep playing that song every single day? And it's February 3rd. And he looks outside and he sees the snow from the blizzard. And he says, almost with tears in his eyes, and Bill Murray does an amazing job of being funny and moving in this movie. He is perfect. Pitch perfect. He says to Rita, do you realize what today is? Today is tomorrow. Today is tomorrow. And we know that he has changed, not just to move past what he was, but he has changed in his art. Because he, he asked that question, is there anything... I can do for you 
today. Is there anything I can do for you today? Imagine each of us, each in our own way, waking up every day and asking to the person or the people we share our lives with, maybe to the person who serves us coffee, maybe to a friend that we've had a falling out with, and ask, is there anything that I can do for you today? I love what Thoreau said. He said that only that day dawns to which we are awake. And so may you be awake this day. And being fully awake and fully present, may you be awakened tomorrow by the dawn. Amen. And may you live in blessing. Thanks for listening to this message from Wellsprings Congregation. If you'd like to find out more about us, you can reach us at wellspringsuu.org. Mm-hmm.